Welcome to the April 16th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll review evidence that selecting donors with specific types of natural killer cells leads to improved outcome in stem cell transplantation. Review an analysis of platelet transfusion in cerebral hemorrhage and explore the challenges of diagnosing recurrent ipsilateral deep vein thrombosis. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled External Validation of Models for CUR-2DS1 and CUR-3DL1 Informed Selection of Hematopoietic Cell Donors Fails by Johann Schettelig from University Hospital Dresden, Germany and colleagues from across the German Cooperative Transplant Study Group. Relapse after allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, is a major cause of treatment failure. Natural killer, NK cells, are believed to contribute to early disease control and remission induction after allogeneic HCT. NK cells kill target cells. Depending on the integration of activating and inhibitory signals received through a variety of cell surface receptors, among them, killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptors, or CURs, whose cognate ligands are HLA class I molecules, are particularly important. For example, NK cells that contact self-HLA molecules through CUR receptors are inhibited, preventing autoreactivity. Theoretically, however, the lack of a cognate HLA antigen, normally recognized by inhibitory CURs, could lead to activation of donor NK cells and subsequent destruction of leukemia cells. However, it is also widely believed that NK cells are important regulators of remission maintenance, even when donor and recipient are completely HLA-matched, suggesting that the missing self-hypothesis alone cannot explain Kerr-mediated alloreactivity in HLA-compatible transplantation. In this setting, it is assumed that changes of the NK-specific recognition pattern specific to the leukemic cells elicit NK-mediated alloreactivity. This model essentially adopts the idea that a donor Kerr gene repertoire which optimizes signaling through activating Kerrs and minimizes signaling through inhibitory Kerrs may reduce the risk of relapse. Several previous studies have proposed strategies to identify stem cell donors with favorable Kerr and HLA genotypes. In particular, one promising model predicts that information on CUR-2DS1 and CUR-3DL1 and their cognate HLA ligands can be used to classify donors as CUR-advantageous or disadvantageous. CUR-2DS1 is a strongly inhibiting receptor, while CUR-3DL1 is a weak or non-inhibiting receptor. In this study, Shetelig et al. set out to validate this previous algorithm for predicting relapse risk after allogeneic HCT for patients with AML, based on information on donor CUR-2DS1, CUR-3DL1, and their ligands. The investigators analyzed data from 2,222 patients with AML or MDS, who underwent matched unrelated donor transplantation. 
Kerr genes were typed using high-resolution Amplicon-based next-generation sequencing. The impact of the predictor algorithm on overall survival, or OS, and relapse incidence was tested in a Cox regression model, adjusted for patient age, a modified disease risk index, performance status, donor age, HLA match, sex match, CMV match, conditioning intensity, type of T-cell depletion, and graft type. However, in univariable analyses and subgroup analyses, OS and the cumulative incidence of relapse of patients with a Kerr advantageous donor were comparable to patients with a Kerr disadvantageous donor. The adjusted hazard ratio from the multivariable Cox regression model was 0.99 for OS and 1.04 for relapse incidence. The authors also tested the impact of activating donor CUR2DS1 and inhibition by CUR3DL1 separately, but did not find a significant impact on OS and the risk of relapse. Thus, this investigation shows that the previously proposed model does not universally predict NK-mediated disease control. The authors did not find any evidence that their large patient population differed in any significant way from the previously studied cohorts. Most importantly, the study shows that a deeper knowledge of NK-mediated alloreactivity is necessary to predict its contribution to graft versus leukemia reactions and to eventually utilize Kerr genotype information for donor selection. Next up, we'll discuss evidence from the blood article entitled Platelet Transfusion in Cerebral Hemorrhage Patch Trial Explanatory Analyses by Mary Baragalu from Amsterdam University Medical Centers, AMC Netherlands, and numerous colleagues across Europe involved in the patch trial. Patients receiving antiplatelet therapy who then develop spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage have a higher case fatality due to more intracerebral hemorrhage, or ICH, growth, compared to patients not using antithrombotic drugs. However, the transfusion of platelets to patients who present with intracranial hemorrhage while taking antiplatelet therapy is regarded as controversial. In 2015, the American Association of Blood Banks published platelet guidelines that highlighted the lack of data in regard to the transfusion of platelets to these patients. In an effort to determine if platelet transfusion was associated with better outcomes, the PATCH clinical trial randomized 190 patients between platelet transfusion and standard care. When the initial results were first reported in a Lancet paper in 2016, platelet transfusion was unexpectedly shown to be associated with a worse outcome in terms of an increased growth of the intracerebral bleed, increased brain edema, and a higher rate of intraventricular extension. Further, the risk of death or disability at three months post-incident was increased twofold compared to standard care. The original patch investigators hypothesized that the poor outcomes might be due to pro-inflammatory effects of transfused platelets, possibly enhanced during storage. In this article, these authors report a secondary analysis of the original patch data aimed at explaining the original results. Specifically, Baraglu et al. extensively reviewed the original patient demographics and brain imaging studies. In the original study, 
either CAT scan or magnetic resonance imaging were performed on admission and repeated after 24 plus or minus three hours with the same modality. As before, the imaging studies were reviewed by blinded central reading. The investigators measured volumes using an automated planimetric method, total lesion involving ICH and perihematomal edema, or PHE, and the area involving ICH alone were determined on unenhanced baseline and follow-up imaging studies. In this analysis, the authors found that the intervention group and the control group were not evenly matched at baseline for risk factors. First, the authors found that patients assigned to the invention group had significantly larger intracerebral hemorrhage, perihematomal edema, and total lesion volume than those in the control group at presentation. In addition, more patients in the transfusion arm had been treated with a drug regimen, which results in greater platelet inhibition, or dual therapy or ADP inhibitor therapy. These baseline differences may have increased the risk of hemorrhage expansion, irrespective of transfusion strategy, and provide a credible alternative hypothesis for the observed differences in outcomes between the study groups. The investigators found no differences in outcomes observed that were associated with platelet type, apheresis platelets versus buffy coat platelets, or duration of platelet storage. Overall, the authors conclude that the negative outcomes associated with platelet transfusion in this study could potentially be attributable to a lack of balance between the transfusion arm and the control arm. They further suggest that the value, if any, of platelet transfusion in this setting remains unknown. It's possible that only by evaluating a patchwork of clinical trial data and real-world observations Using well-designed common data models, will we determine the best approach to answering these complex clinical questions? Now for a review of the report published in Blood, entitled, Diagnosis of Suspected Recurrent Ipsilateral Deep Vein Thrombosis with Magnetic Resonance Direct Thrombus Imaging by Lizette Van Dam from the Leiden University Medical Center, Netherlands, and her colleagues. The diagnosis of recurrent ipsilateral deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, is challenging because persistent intravascular abnormalities after previous DVT often hinder a diagnosis by compression ultrasonography. Magnetic resonance direct thrombus imaging, a technique without intravenous contrast and with a 10-minute acquisition time, has been developed as a promising alternative technique to more accurately distinguish acute recurrent DVT from chronic thrombotic changes. Despite major technical advances in recent years, critical limitations to current available diagnostic techniques for venous thromboembolism, or VTE, exist in specific settings. The failure to provide an accurate diagnosis may lead to misdiagnosis and subsequent mistreatment affecting both morbidity and mortality. One of these settings is suspected recurrent ipsilateral DVT of the leg, in which the safety of ruling out recurrent DVT by applying clinical decision scores and D-dimer testing has not been established. Moreover, the diagnosis of recurrent DVT using compression ultrasonography, or CUS, is complicated by residual vascular abnormalities following a first DVT episode in up to 50% of patients after one year, despite adequate anticoagulant treatment.
CUS has been proposed to be diagnostic for recurrent DVT in the case of a new non-compressible venous segment or a greater than or equal to 2 to 4 millimeters increase in vein diameter of a previously non-compressible vein in comparison with a prior compression ultrasonography. However, in clinical practice, a prior CUS is often unavailable and comparisons with previous CUS examinations are subject to major inter-observer variability. Similarly, the residual vascular abnormalities from a first DVT complicate the interpretation of all other diagnostic modalities, including contrast venography. As a consequence, recurrent ipsilateral DVT cannot be ruled out in up to 30% of patients in daily practice, resulting in overtreatment. In the THEA study reported here, the authors evaluated the safety of MRDTI as the sole test for excluding recurrent ipsilateral DVT. The study was a prospective international multicenter diagnostic management study involving patients with clinically suspected acute recurrent ipsilateral DVT. Patients were managed according to the MRDTI result, performed within 24 hours of study inclusion. The primary outcome was the three-month incidence of venous thromboembolism in those patients where the MRDTI was read as negative for DVT. A secondary outcome was the inter-observer agreement of MRDTI readings. An independent committee adjudicated all endpoints, observing 305 patients. Results were as follows. The baseline prevalence of recurrent DVT was 38%. Superficial thrombophlebitis was diagnosed in 4.6%. The primary outcome of new thromboembolism occurred in only 2 of 119 patients with MRDTI negative for DVT and thrombophlebitis, who were not treated with any anticoagulant during follow-up. Neither of these two recurrences was fatal. Overall, the incidence of recurrent venous thromboembolism in all patients with MRDTI negative for DVT was 1.7%. The agreement between initial local and post hoc central reading of the MRDTI images was excellent, with a kappa statistic of 0.91. The authors concluded that the incidence of venous thromboembolism recurrence after negative MRDTI was low, and MRDTI proved to be a feasible and reproducible diagnostic test. In summary, this investigation reveals MRDTI to be a viable option when evaluating suspected recurrent ipsilateral DVT. Although limited availability of this technology and high costs must still be addressed, a larger study, including international teams, is suggested. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals. 